But I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be reading some of that passage in a moment. My uh, heart has been really fixed on this whole theme and idea of pursuing Jesus Christ, of longing to know Him and longing to be like Him. Paul has described that for us in chapter 3 of Philippians as his singular passion. He says, I want to know Him more than anything else. I want to be close to Him, and and as I draw near Him, I want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, but one which is through faith in Christ. And as I've thought about that, one of the things that I think comes to mind is a question that all of us may ask is, how much is possible in this life? How far can we go? to becoming like Christ. Um, You've heard my testimony, but growing up very frequently, uh, I was basically taught uh, through my church and in my family that as long as we're in this body, we're just going to be sinners. We're just going to keep doing bad stuff and and being mean and, and losing tempers and being selfish and you know, we're just saved. We're going to heaven. Our sins are forgiven, but we're just going to struggle with this. And, and that was kind of like my mindset growing up. Um, then I started learning that uh, there were other kinds of mindsets out there. There were, there were other theologies. Um, the holiness movement was characterized by various ways of understanding uh, Romans chapter 6. And there was one church group that believed that when you were filled with the Holy Spirit, you didn't sin anymore. So, I, I had on the one hand my family background telling me, you're just, you're just going to struggle uh, and muddle through life with constant failure, just accept it. And now there's a church group saying, uh, you can be filled with the Holy Spirit and never sin again. And, and you can be perfect. And those are two extremes of the question. And in the middle of all of that, you know, my question for us and and my interest for us is, what is realistically possible? What can we hope to have happen to us in this journey, on this planet, in this lifetime, in the course of following hard after Jesus Christ? And when we consider that question, one of the things that, that I want to, you know, to keep hammering home, there's going to be a couple of truths I do that with over the next few weeks, but one of the things that we need to keep underscoring is that what we're talking about is not a natural progression of getting better. What we're talking about is a miracle. We're talking about a supernatural transformation. So when we, when we ask the question, what's possible, 
the first thing we do have to do legitimately is to put it in the realm of miraculous. We have to put it on a level, not I, but Christ. That this is not a change, but an exchange. That I am going to die to myself, and Jesus Christ is going to live through me. Paul gave that testimony to the Galatians. He says, I am crucified with Christ. But obviously I'm alive. Nevertheless, I live. But not I. But Christ is living in me. And the life which I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up on my behalf. So Paul talked about a life that was His, but not His. A life that was different because Christ was living through it. And so we need to recognize, when we begin to ask the question, what is possible? We need to recognize that it is a miraculous transformation that the New Testament offers us. And and I want that to be good news for you. You know, I, I don't want that to be discouraging, but I want it to be good news. The good news is that... We do not have to live our whole lives locked into our ugly selves. That we can be wonderfully different by the power of God. And that we can see a transformation that takes us beyond our wildest imagination. That God can truly effect an amazing change. In fact, God does not undertake to rehabilitate us in our old selves. The Scripture says plainly what He has in mind is crucifixion. He wants to bring us to a place where we are dead to ourselves and alive in Jesus Christ in resurrected power. And... Today I'm going to be talking about one aspect of the character of Christ, but next week I'm going to begin to explore some other realms, problems that many many of us have, um, disorders that many of us have, psychological problems that people suffer from, personality and behavioral problems that uh, we like to attach the word disorder to all of those kinds of things, and and put them automatically in the realm of medicine and the body and some sort of um, framework of chemistry or whatever. And quite honestly, there's not a lot of hope in that realm. But there is hope in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to be talking about how the power of God in our lives can change us in amazing and marvelous ways. But I have to, again, underscore one of the absolute requirements to see that happen. And this is where many people come up short. It is that Jesus Christ is my number one pursuit. That He is the passion, the ambition, the goal of my life. That nothing is more important than Him. 
a lot of believers come up short and get disappointed in their expectations because they kind of hope that God will fix what they see as their defects while leaving rather untouched the parts of themselves they like so much. And Paul looked at his life, and he said, All of my accomplishments, and all of my advancements, and all of my recognition, and all the things that were dear to me, I have counted as as a pile of rubbish that I may know Jesus Christ. And the power of God and transformation that we're talking about is a power that is effective when we are totally surrendered. And so I, I want to give my disclaimer this morning for today and next week and perhaps some messages to follow. And that is that this works, it's guaranteed by Scripture, but it only works when the criteria of absolute surrender is met. God is waiting for people who will give Him their whole heart and sell out to to God. Whatever you want to do with me is fine. So, when we start talking about what can I expect and what is possible, it it is a miracle that the Scripture offers us. It is transformation that is amazing, but it is a transformation that with Paul requires the pursuit of Jesus Christ as a singular goal. Now, when we come to Philippians chapter 2, and I'd like you to follow with me as I read Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. And do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, as Paul is writing this letter back to the church of Philippi, and he's going to send it with Epaphroditus, because the church, as you recall, has sent him a gift, and Epaphroditus has stayed to help out in the process. He got quite ill, and everyone was worried about him, but now he's better. Paul's sending this letter back. It's a thank you note. But Paul, being, being a pastor, <laughs> he has a pastor's heart. And he's heard that there are some issues in the church at Philippi. As wonderful a church as it is, there are still some issues. There's some people that are frustrated with one another. And, and uh, there's uh, some, some little faction kinds of things uh, developing. And Paul wants to, to write them very lovingly to um, 
you know, to bring some correction. And out of that, and, and his personal testimony in chapter 3, is actually cast in the backdrop of this encouragement. He says, I want you to have an attitude throughout your assembly that is like the attitude that Christ had. And, and it's that really what led him to say, Everything that was dear to me and important to me, I've counted as insignificant so that I can gain Jesus Christ. He he puts it in those terms. And he says, "The, the attitude that I want you to have that will move you down the path toward godly character, toward being like Christ, is an attitude of humility. And, and I want you to have this attitude that existed in Christ Jesus. And he explains that. He says, he existed in the form of God. Now, don't let that throw you. My message this morning is not about the deity of Christ, but people kind of get hung up there. What Paul is saying is that Jesus rightfully existed in heaven as God. He, he was there. He was God. In the heavens, that was His form. That's the position He held. And He changed that position in order to come and meet our need, to reach us, to love us, and, and to die for us. And so He said He left that role, and He came to this earth, and He took on the form of a man. And He was made like sinful flesh. He made this huge transition in order to reach us in our need. And Paul says that that is the humility that I want to see developing in you. I want to see you have that attitude that was in Christ. Now, there are some things that are true about that that we can relate to ourselves. Every one of us here today has accomplished something, you know. Um, if nothing else, you've gotten as old as you are. <laughs> you've hung out in life long enough. You've made some accomplishments. You've accomplished some things along the way. There's some things to your credit, whatever. Uh, every one of you have uh, things in your life that you do well. I hope you do. And I hope when I say that, that some things come to mind. You know, what, what is it that you do well? What do you... What are your aptitudes? What are your skills? What do you like to do? What are you? What do you excel at? And if nothing comes to mind, ask some friends to help you out a little bit. You know, tell you what they see because we have those kinds of things. And Paul says that Jesus Christ rightfully possessed the privilege and the attributes, and the glory, and the majesty of being God. And he set that aside. He counted it as insignificant in order that he might come to us at a level where we could connect with him. Where we could touch him. Can can you imagine? It's hard to imagine. It's so contrary to the story we know. But can you imagine if Jesus Christ had simply showed up on this planet as God? Clothed in his glory. 
Do you remember the disciples, Peter, James, and John, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when they caught just a glimpse of that? They were, they were almost speechless. Well, Peter was never speechless, but, but they were basically speechless, and they didn't know what to do. He did not come in all of that splendor and majesty that was heavenly. He came in a way that we could connect with Him and touch Him and see Him and walk with Him and experience Him. And you recall the disciples in the Last Supper uh, as they were talking with Jesus and He was explaining where He was going and what was happening. And the disciples says, if you could just show us the Father, that would, that would help. If we could just see the Father. And Jesus said, have I been so long with you and yet you don't know who I am? If you've seen me, you've seen God. But it was God clothed in a form that they could get next to. And so Jesus didn't come dashing to earth with 10,000 angels heralding the parade. He came as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, born into the care of an ordinary couple who nurtured him in infancy. And he grew up among us and walked in our shoes. And so Paul is encouraging all of us in the same way. Look at all, look at all the things that you can lay claim to in your life. Paul says, I was a, I was a Pharisee. I, I am a pedigree Jew. I have a, a, a history of law-keeping according to the traditions of the fathers. He said, I, I am a man who in the system was highly acclaimed. And I counted it all as nothing that I could know Jesus Christ. I put that all aside. That is not important. And friends, when we come into the community of this fellowship, uh, one of the things that we, we must do is lay aside all of those outside things that give us claim and fame in whatever realm and come here on level ground at the foot of the cross and recognize that we are all fellow pilgrims in a journey. And people who have that attitude have a, a characteristic of humility. Genuine humility. They don't put themselves above other people. Paul says we need to have that attitude. But furthermore, unlike Christ, there's something else that ought to get our attention. Jesus Christ was morally and spiritually perfect. But when we look at our lives, there's nothing for us to lay hold of, of moral and spiritual perfection. We are all sinners, saved by grace. Every one of us has failed. And it's difficult when you see your own depravity. It's difficult to have an attitude of superiority among your peers. We're, we're on the same playing field. Consider some of the passages that um, talk about this attitude. Jesus in the Beatitudes, that first part of the Sermon on the Mount, 
says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Who is going to attain the kingdom of heaven? Who is going to advance spiritually? Those who know they're poor. The ones who mourn, and I don't believe that's talking about mourning human loss or physical loss. Those who have a sense of mourning in their own heart over their failure in in moral and spiritual terms. Those who mourn and grieve will be comforted that God's heart and favor is toward those who have an attitude that recognizes their need. Galatians chapter 6 is an interesting passage. In that passage, Paul is talking to them about how to deal with people in the church who sin. And he says, even if someone is caught in a trespass, let you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of humility with gentleness looking to yourselves, lest you too be tempted. You know, sometimes when someone sins, uh, one of the first things that may come to mind is, we need to bring church discipline. We need to expose them. We need to bring them under the discipline of the church. We need to deal with the sin in our midst. That may be true on one level. But, What is mostly true is that discipline is designed to restore, not to expose and punish. It's designed to restore. And Paul says, you who are spiritual, you who are mature, you who have moved down that journey in Christ-like character, when someone sins, go to them in a spirit of gentleness, and seek to restore them. You know, I, I, one of the things that comes to my mind when I think of that sort of thing is, is the years I spent with the rescue squad as a paramedic, responding to an accident scene or to a medical emergency where people are in a life-threatening situation, something terrible has happened, um, they're messy. If it's trauma, they're bleeding. There's there's ugliness in, in the scene, and all of that. You know, and we never ask questions like, um, "Are you of good moral character? Have you ever been arrested? Um, do you have any diseases I might get?" You know, uh, we didn't. We didn't even. Those were not under consideration. There was a person who had a need, and they needed emergency care. And they needed someone who was willing to get their hands in the mess to stop the bleeding and secure and stabilize the the spine and get them out of the situation and get them to a place of care or to... Uh, you know, give them some glucose if they were unconscious and maybe hadn't uh, taken their insulin or taken too much or whatever. Whatever the need was, to respond to that need with care and compassion and focus to render aid. 
And Paul says the church should be a place like that, where spiritual people and those who are maturing should be the first on the scene of a spiritual trauma. When someone falls, when someone stumbles, when they're wounded, when the devil has bowled them down, when they have sinned, that they should be first on the scene to respond to that crisis and to, with gentleness, begin the healing process to restore them. You know, and it may look different than, than an emergency scene in medicine. It may look different. But the speed of care and the gentleness and the compassion... And, and really the question at that moment is not, didn't you see that this was going to happen the way you were going? No, they didn't. That's why they're, if they had seen this, they wouldn't be here. They need someone to come alongside and love them. And with gentleness, begin to restore and begin to heal. And that takes humility. And it comes in part from the recognition that that could be me. In fact, Paul goes on in that very passage to say, looking to yourselves. Now, now who's he talking to? He's talking to the spiritual one. The mature one. Looking to yourselves, lest you too be tempted... And in that context, he says, for take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall. Because pride comes before destruction. And so there's all these warnings that humility is required. It is also interesting that in James, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud. If you think you're somebody, God is opposed to you. And when I mean somebody, somebody of importance, I'm, you know, I, I, I have weight around here. I should be respected. Well, if you think you're somebody, you're in trouble. God is opposed to the proud. But His grace is available to the humble. Isn't that a remarkable statement? Even further in James, I'm going to jump ahead just a bit in my last point that we're called to walk alongside one another. But when we get over to the fifth chapter of James, and James says, is there any sick among you? Let that person call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed any sins, they will be forgiven him. The concept is, and and please understand this, put this in the total context, but, but the concept is that when there's illness, there should be a question mark before God. Is there something in my life that you're trying to get my attention about? There's something you want to change. I'm not saying that every time you're sick, it's because you sinned. But I am saying that every time you're sick, you should raise the question with God. 
we're called to do that. And in that question, the Scripture says, Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you can be healed. Now, there's humility. There's an openness that says, you know, I'm willing to be open and transparent. I need you to pray for me. That may mean in front of the whole church, but more likely it means in that passage, specifically in the context of the elders, it might be in a small group. It might be among trusted friends that you meet with that are part of the faith community. It may be in a Bible study. But there should be a place in the family of God where you can bring your failures and pray for one another for healing. And, and that willingness to do that is humility. So how is it that humility is developed in us as we move along the journey with our eyes on Jesus Christ? One of the truths, and, and oh, that does come up, but it won't stay. Maybe it's better to read it down there anyway. It's more in my focal, focal length. <clears throat> These are freebies on the side, okay? Here, here's another nugget to just tuck away. Belief in the truth precedes the implementation and the transformation that comes from, from that truth. You have to lay a foundation of truth in your life and get it in there really good that by faith you can kind of build upon it. Fact, truth of Scripture, is always the first step in the process of, of transformation. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Behavior follows belief. And belief has to be oriented toward God. What God says is true. I believe. I take that by faith. I believe. In one sense, you can almost say that that all sin stems from unbelief. And all success stems from belief, from faith. And here's a fact of Scripture. The Scripture asks the question, what do you have that you have not received? As we pursue Jesus Christ and as we grow closer to Him and become more aware of His character, one of the things that begins to to build in our hearts and minds as a fact is that I am who I am in all dimensions because of the grace of God. What do you have that you have not received? You see, if you have accomplished something on your own, perhaps you have bragging rights. But if everything you have has come from God, where is the bragging right? And think about that for a moment. What are your... What are your gifts? What are your talents? What are your aptitudes? What do you do well? Where did that come from? 
How did you get that? Most people who, first of all, believe the Scriptures, but many who don't even believe the Scriptures, but just study human nature, most people see a common thread from childhood all the way to adulthood in, in the choice of occupation and jobs or whatever else. They see a thread going all the way back to childhood with respect to certain aptitudes and certain abilities. It may look different later on down the road, because now you're trying to take that skill and turn it into an ability to earn a living. But why does a carpenter become a carpenter, and what did they do as a child? You know, and why does a surgeon become a surgeon, and why does an accountant become an accountant? What did they do as a child? What were they like? What is on the hard drive, as we say? God has wired each one of us. We are skillfully and wonderfully shaped and fashioned in our mother's womb. God has made us with certain things that are part of our nature. And yeah, you can say, well, I went to school and and I developed this skill, or I accomplished this degree, or I've learned this talent. And then my question for you is, where did those opportunities come from? And how did you have the ability to do that? And how your health is a gift from God. Your mind is a gift from God. Your abilities are gifts from God. What do you have that you can lay claim to? Really, apart from Jesus Christ, what do you have that you have not received? As we grow more like Him and grow closer to Him, we see how He has made us. We see that it is His design and His shaping and that He has known all along. You know, when God called me to preach, He spoke to me from the call of Jeremiah. And it's a powerful verse. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. I had a design in mind. And and you are the product of that design. Yes, sin has marred us, and the sin nature holds us in bondage, and we need a Redeemer, but we are still in the image of God. And, and even our strongest points, one of, the, one of the dumbest things people can do is be proud of their beauty or their handsomeness. What did you have to do with that? I mean, think about it. Did you plan that? Was that something you did to, to make that happen? You totally inherited that. If you don't appreciate your parents for anything else, if you're handsome or beautiful, thank them for that because those genes were there. You know, if, if you've got an IQ of 150, what did you do to get that? <laughs> you were born then. And you didn't have anything to do with that. You know? Everything you have has come from God. And those who grow in Christ-like character become aware of this sense of divine destiny and this sense of God having shaped me and fashioned me for His purposes. And the joy and the blessing and the 
the privilege and, and the fun that I have in life often comes out of the experience of those things that God has shaped me for. And, and they have come from Him. The other thing that comes through in this passage is, Paul says quite plainly, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, Philippians 2.3, but with humility of mind, let each one of you regard one another as more important than himself. Now, I have made a lot of the fact that, as Paul says in Romans 7, there, that in me and my flesh there's nothing good. I've made a lot of that. And you often hear me say, and I've said it probably already today, that we are moral zeros. You know, we are totally deficit. We have no natural ability to keep the law of God or to please God. We are, we are morally zeros. We're bankrupt. But we are not zero zeros. We have value. We are important. Our lives count. We are eternal. We are going to last forever. That's God made us that way. Human life is important. And in shaping us and making us that way, God has said, the value that I place upon your life you can see on the cross. To me, you were worth the death of my son. How many times have you heard me say that? You were worth that. God says that's the value I put on you. So we have great value. We are precious people. You know, and, and if you ever find yourself having one of those days, for whatever reason, that you're just down on yourself, and, and the enemy's beating you up, and maybe you've, maybe you've done some dumb things, and it's harvest time, and you're now reaping the consequences, whatever, and, and you're just down on yourself, stop and think for a moment, by faith, that I am of great worth to God. That He loves me and that He considered me worth the death of His Son. He paid that price for me. That's tremendous. Now, Paul says, when you come to that understanding, think about Jesus Christ who left His rightful place in glory and came to earth to do what we needed to have done in order to save us, and you put others ahead of yourself in terms of your own desires and importance. That other person, if I, if they need what I have, they are more important than meeting my own needs, pursuing my own agenda. Jesus put it another way as he told his disciples, if you want to be first, take the role of a servant. If you want to be number one, you become the servant. If I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you should wash each other's feet. 
you should never consider yourself to be in a position that you cannot stoop to this lowly place and serve your brothers and sisters. Because God's love places a premium on the needs of others. And then as we move closer to Christ as well, humility develops in parallel with the awareness of our own depravity. I'm I'm going back to the moral bankruptcy now for a moment. But you know what happens when you bring something close to the light? The closer to the light it gets, the more obvious the details are. And if those details happen to be flaws and failures, the closer to the light you get, the more the defects stand out. And as you grow close to Jesus Christ, if you have the um, right relationship with him, as those come out, instead of uh, getting all uh, shameful and frustrated and uh, defensive and all those kinds of things, you know, you just look at it and agree with God, yeah, that's what's there. And I, and I just give it to you. Remember, whose job is it to make me holy? So, I, I see it, Lord. I agree. Now, that's your problem. I, I, I'm not going to get focused on my defect. But we do become aware. And God will take us down a path towards spiritual maturity that includes a, an up-close and personal look at our own depravity. It has to come. You can never have the humility that is characteristic of Jesus Christ. And he had no depravity. I mean, his humility was born of his character. But you will never have genuine humility until you have come to be thoroughly acquainted with your own sinfulness. And the day you stop throwing stones and judging, and criticizing, and belittling, and gloating, is the day that you get a good look at how ugly your heart is, apart from Jesus Christ. And that brings humility of a good kind if it's in the right context. If it's in the presence of God, and He's the one doing the revealing, when you see that, it will be very hard for you to gloat over another person's failure or to think, I could never do that. I would never be like that. My answer to you is, you don't know yourself very well. And even when we know ourselves well, the Scripture says, the heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, who can know it? So even when you get that look, and and, and God brings you to that place, and you're aware that you really are a sinner to the core, recognize that you've only seen a glimpse of the blackness that lies there. And God has saved you from that. And He has loved you. And He has redeemed you. And He cherishes you. How can there be pride 
in the midst of that kind of awareness. And so as God builds this in our lives, as we walk with Christ, He, he does these things for us to become aware of our giftedness is from Him. The value of others takes preeminence. And our own sinfulness makes us aware of the love of God in the cross. I want to conclude this morning and pick up the theme next week that humility is developed and lived out in community. Our journey toward Christ is not a solo journey. It's always in the context of a faith community. It's always in the context of a family. We're not intended to go this alone. And I go back to those Bible study groups and the small groups and the times that you meet. We are designed to be in community where perhaps not on a Sunday morning in this kind of service, this is not the, the best context. But when we gather together in other subsets and groups, we need to be involved in community where we can be open and transparent and pray for each other and encourage one another and stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Don't forsake assembling. Come together. And when you do, consider. That's a thoughtful kind of approach. Consider how to stimulate each other, encourage each other to love and to good deeds. In other words, be a source of blessing. Be be a, a group that is an encouragement. The church is really supposed to be a place where you can let your guard down and be safe. And And it all has to be functioning for that to happen. I won't ask you for a show of hands. In fact, I'm going to ask you not to raise your hand. How many of you feel safe among your brothers and sisters in the community? And by safe, I mean you're not afraid you're going to get smashed if you reveal a struggle you're having. You're not afraid if you talk about some issue you're battling in your life, they're going to talk about you when you leave. How many of you know that the people closest to you are going to pray for you and hold you before God and guard your trust and want the best for you? That's safe. I'm not going to get exploited. I'm not going to get exposed. I'm not going to get abused. I'm not going to get condemned. I can take a risk here because I'm loved. I'm in a community that loves me. Paul is encouraging that kind of community in Philippians chapter 2. Look out for each other. Put one another's needs ahead of your own. Take an interest in each other. Um, Maintain the same love, united in spirit, intent on the purpose. Working together, loving together, serving together. We're called to walk alongside of each other so that we can grow in Jesus Christ. The scripture says, as iron sharpens iron, so 
one man sharpens another. You know, we, we need the ability to bang against each other in a safe context of love to where God can knock off the rough edges. And this is the place it ought to happen. In the family of God. Among your brothers and sisters. This is where that should occur. And if you don't have those kinds of people around you, start praying for them. <laughs> you know? Uh, don't, don't go somewhere else. You'll just find more like them. Start praying for them. Start asking God to, to make that kind of community because we need it in order to grow. True followers of Jesus Christ, those who want to be like Him, are characterized by humility arising out of a deep sense of who they are without Christ, of what they have received from Christ, and who they are in Christ. I think humility is probably the starting point for all of the other graces and qualities. And the reason I say this is, is because one of the hallmarks of humility is being teachable. If you are a humble person, you are teachable. And as Christ begins to build that character into you of his own nature, you become open to correction, to new information, to changing your thinking, to listening to constructive Criticism that out of love is designed to benefit you. And in that, in that way, out of that teachableness, we are able to allow him to come through us in new and different ways. Father, I want to pray this morning that as we pursue the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we want to know Him. And we want to be like Him. To recognize that although He had no need to take the form of a servant, He deserved praise and worship as the eternal God. He nonetheless did take the form of a servant and humbled himself that he might reach us. And oh, how sinners loved him. The Gospels are full of stories. Those who had the greatest need were drawn to him. They loved him. And he loved them. And there was healing in that encounter. The proud Pharisees could never get close to him. Lord, I pray that we would be those kind of people, the kind that draw near him even with our sinfulness, but also the kind that others can get close to because we love them and we value them 
and we recognize their needs as more important than our own. And we're approachable. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.